Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Peter Gray, author of the book Free to Learn, which is an amazing piece of work and very well known within the self-directed or unschooling community. He writes uh, for Psychology Today and can be found uh, very widely across the interwebs. If you just put his name in, you'll find a couple of his TED Talks as well. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on and sharing your thoughts about unschooling and self-directed education. He is an expert in this field. He's done many, many studies, and he comes on and shares all of that. And you'll be shocked to see the amount of parallels and overlaps we have with the Bitcoin community. I've said it many times before, I stride both of these communities and I can see such a huge crossover and I'm just so excited to be able to try and bring them together. I hope you enjoy this episode with Peter, it's, it's crazy. Before we get into the show, I would like to give a shout out to CoinFloor in the UK, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten Bitcoin only exchange. Go start stacking your sats. If you're in Europe, Relay have you covered, R-E-L-A-I.ch forward slash Bitten. You can start stacking your sats with those guys. If you're in the US, hello everybody over there. Thank you so much for tuning in. Swan Bitcoin, fly it across 50 states. They have you covered, best Bitcoin team out there. SwanBitcoin.com forward slash Bitten. But then make sure you take your corn off the exchanges or the apps, get your sats safe, with shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten bitbox02 bitcoin only wallet okay we are recording peter welcome to the show thank you so much for uh, for joining us i'm glad to be here well i have two of my uh extra interviewers with me here today and uh for very good reason lauren and her brother and another of her sisters, we have four children, they, um, they partake in self-directed education on a platform called uh, GalileoXP.com, which is very much like uh, a Sudbury value sy system, but uh, global and on Zoom and around the world and all inclusive, all ages. You would love it if we can discuss it again uh, at some point. Uh, but this was launched on the back of the, the homeschooling summits, which I interviewed you for the last few years. And Caitlin here, um, at her choice, chooses to go to the local college or lycée um, after three years of being homeschooled between the ages of eight or 11. And uh, her question, uh, why don't you fire away with your question? Because this is a, a kind of a point of contention, or a little bit of play that, that her and I have between each other. Um, but you and your ability to explain what I'm trying to explain will be much deeper than anything I can get across. So go ahead, Caitlin, ask Peter your question. Um, are schools prisons? <laughs> I have said that 
uh, my son told me that long ago. He was the one who informed me that schools are prison. Um, and there's at least a certain sense in which I would say schools are prison. So, of course, so much depends on how you define words. So if you define a prison as a place where you have to be and where while you're there, you're not free, you have to do what you're told to do. You're required to be there. And while you're there, you have to follow instructions and do just what you're told to do. And you're not free to do what you want to do. So by that definition, for people who don't have a choice about being in school, it's prison. Now, you're in a situation where I believe you have a choice because you have the option of homeschooling and other options. But many people in many parts of the world don't have a choice. And even if the law requires a choice, many families can't, uh, can't provide a choice. So. They have to, so then the child gets sent to school, whether the child wants to be there or not. And then the child while there is being told exactly what to do. In some ways um, in school, children are more strictly controlled and managed than prisoners are in an actual prison. <laughs> There's a, actually a film, um, if you, you may be able to find it, I'm not sure if it's available online, called The War on Childhood, in which uh, the filmmaker goes into prisons and looks at the life of people within the prison. And then he goes into schools <laughs> and looks at the life of children within the school. And after watching that, you kind of feel like you would rather be in a prison than in the school. The prisoners, for example, can go to the library of the prison whenever they want. They can go to the bathroom without asking for permission. They can talk to one another without somebody uh, hollering at them because they're talking to their neighbor. They can do all kinds of things that uh, children in school typically cannot do. So, you know, it depends on how you look at it. On the other hand, I have to confess that for the most part, um, people can go home at the end of the school day. <laughs> so you're not locked in there for months on end. So I think it's, a, I think it's, a, I, I get some flack for saying school is prison because it's, a, it, it seems a little bit of an exaggeration to many people. But on the other hand, um, I think it's possible to justify that statement. If you have a choice oh. about being there, then it's not prison. If you if you know that any time that you don't want to be there, you could leave, then it's not prison. Is that the case? Are you able to leave whenever you want? Well, we used to be able to, but now French schools are using the excuse of um, they're protecting us from terrorist attacks, so we're not allowed to leave at all and also the pandemic they're using that as an excuse but the french school system um is very 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 strict and um very old school and um yeah it's a bit depressing really but <laughs> i like it and i still go so. 
she's she trapped in the positive reinforcement feedback loop, Peter. She she gets very good grades and she is one of the top of her class and the top of her year. So, you know. So I think as long as you're enjoying it, there's nothing wrong with it. And as long as you feel like it's your choice, there's nothing wrong with it. What's wrong with it is so many people um, don't feel it's their choice and um, and are not happy with that. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, and that will lead us now into Lauren's question because she takes the self-directed education route and she won't get any certifications or qualifications. No, so what was your Yeah, question? my question would be, would I need a, a qualification? Uh, well, you know, it, it, it partly depends on where you are in the world. It, but what I think that um, what I found looking at people in various places who have pursued self-directed education is once they figure out what it is that they want to do, and if what they want to do requires going on to higher education, going on to college, university, they figure out what they need to do to do that. So sometimes it may require studying some certain subjects or taking a test. Here in the United States, um, a common route is to go to what's called community college, which is almost anybody can go to, and it's not very expensive. And they'll go to community college for one or two years, which is, uh, and get some, they're basically taking college courses. And if they do well, then they can transfer to a four-year university, even though they don't have any kind of high school diploma. That works very well in the United States, depending on where else one is in the world, it may or may not work so well. But um, my general finding is that people who grow up with self-directed education are very resourceful. They figure out part of self-directed education is learning how to figure out how to get what you want. <laughs> and so if you want to go on to do something, then you figure out what it is you have to do in order to go on and do that. <clears throat> Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Dramatic pause. Okay. Do, do you have any further questions? Yeah. So if you didn't have a qualification, can you start your own business? Yes, absolutely. There's no requirement for, there's no kind of certificate required for starting your own business. And in fact, one of the things that I've found in my research on grown unschoolers, so these are people who grew up with homeschooling, but with no curriculum, with self-directed education at home. And also with my studies of the graduates of the school called the Sudbury Valley School in the United States, where uh, the... Uh, where it's all self-directed education, is that a very high proportion of them go on to start their own business. This seems to be a direction that a lot of people take who are involved in self-directed education. And perhaps that's not surprising because if you are the kind of person who likes to take control of your own life, you would rather start your own business more often than work for somebody else's business. So there you go. Happy? Yes. Okay. You can go back to making your business plan. Yes. <laughs> with the knowledge that even Peter, um, with all of his research, he's, he's done hundreds of hours of research mm -hmm. of, of people 
that have, have done this and have gone through the kind of experiences that you're going through. And guess what? They're all alive and they're all very happy, high functioning adults now. Mm. At least most of them are. I can't swear that every single one is, but. <laughs> okay, girls, any more questions? I think that's it. We can do the rest. Okay. Thank you. Say goodbye. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank nice you. Nice to meet you. Good questions. Thanks, Peter. Uh, yes. As I was saying before we started recording, um, the you will probably find it quite strange. That, uh, I would be inviting you onto a um, a Bitcoin focused podcast, uh, but. Throughout my own journey um, down the, the rabbit holes of self-directed education and Bitcoin, I can certainly assure you there's, there's lots to that do overlap. Um, and I want to start with the, the kind of first question we ask ourselves in a Bitcoin community when we first come across finding Bitcoin is, what is money? We, we love to try and peel back the layers and start from first principles. And we ask that question. So I would like to put that question to you in, in the context of, of your research and ask you, uh, what is school? Well, as uh, <laughs> so the thing about words is they can mean whatever you want them to mean. <laughs> it depends on how you want to define it. So uh, typically, when people talk about school, they're talking about what we think of as traditional schools. So school is a place where there's a curriculum, where uh, you're going to be tested, where there are requirements for, uh, for um, achieving a certain um, scores on tests in order to move from class to class, from grade to grade. That's, uh, that's what most people think of as school in our culture. Now, of course, the, the uh, concept of school gets expanded when you, um, when you include something like a Sudbury Valley school uh, as a school. They call themselves a school. Um, and so their definition of a school would be some sort of place that you go to for the purpose of education. Um, and so the idea is uh, whether it's self-directed education or imposed education, a school is some kind of a place that you go to for, um, for education. Now, I suppose you could further, so, that, so, so far our definition of school means a place, some kind of a building, <laughs> some kind of a brick and mortar or wood building that you go to. Um, but the concept gets expanded even further if you're talking about online schools, right? So, uh, or if you're talking about homeschool, that's a place, I suppose. Um, so again, school is kind of a place, either a physical place or a virtual place uh, or, or, or some kind of, um, some kind of um, setting however you want to define setting, uh, where one is involved in education. But the problem is that if you expand it that much, then you have to begin to say, well, the whole world is a school because we're all learning anywhere we are in the world. 
So this is a problem. I don't, this is why I'm not a philosopher. Philosophers spend a lot of time worrying about term definitions. I'm a scientist and what scientists do about terms is we use what we call operational definitions. So we say for the purpose of this particular study or the purpose of this particular conversation, we're going to define school as da, 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 da. And what I'm saying is we could define it however we want. <laughs> right, okay. So and there's there's a lot more I want to talk to you about because your, your book, I should have said in the introduction, your, your book, Free to Learn, is an incredible piece of work. And you, you go through so much of the history of school, even to the point of the agricultural revolution and, and how we moved from hunter-gatherers and how that changed the time of play that children would have once they were under an agricultural kind of um, setting. Would you mind talking the, the listeners through that kind of journey and even all the way up to uh, the, the school under the church and what, what you talk about in your book as uh, uh, indoctrination? Yeah, so... Um... If we look, if we look historically and even prehistorically uh, to the degree that we can, um, the, the mode in which young people become educated has changed over time and of course also across place. We, uh, my understanding of how education occurred um, more than 10,000 years ago comes not from any ability to go back to more than 10,000 years and not even from archaeological evidence. We don't have archaeological evidence about this, but comes from research into um, hunter-gatherers who managed to survive into relatively modern times in various isolated parts of the world and who, when they were discovered and, and studied by anthropologists, um, seem to be living in the same kind of way that we suspect people were living before agriculture. These are hunter-gatherers, they don't have agriculture. And what's interesting is that, you know, several dozen, two, at least two or three dozen uh, such groups had been, had been found in various parts of the world and researched uh, by various anthropologists, mostly in the 20th century. Many of these groups weren't even really found until the 20th century. People were aware of them. They were kind of called savages at that time. Uh, but people began to get seriously interested in them in the mid uh, 19th century, around the 1950s and on. And, um, and so I did a little study in which I identified some anthropologists who had been living with hunter-gatherers and uh, interviewed them or actually surveyed them with a questionnaire about what uh, life was like for children and how children learned in those cultures. And what I found was from every one of the 10 anthropologists who had studied seven different groups on three different continents, from every one of them, I found basically the same story that children, um, there's no such thing as school, that there's very little, if any, teaching by adults to children they you know they might point out which mushrooms are poisonous or something like that but they assume that children are going to learn by observing by taking part uh, to the degree that they want to take part and mostly by playing um, and watching and and bringing what they see into their play 
And so children um, are allowed essentially all day long to play and explore. There is no real work expected of them. Uh, they, and this is from the age of four when they're, when they're kind of free to go where they want with the other kids on through uh, mid to late teenage years, roughly the years that we think of as school age years. The children are playing and exploring on their own, often away from the adults. And in that play and exploration, they are practicing the skills that are essential for, um, for, for success in their culture. Not because anybody's telling them to, but apparently it's just natural to do that. And so that was, um, and uh, hunter-gatherers had uh, this, uh, hunter-gatherer uh, cultures are also called by um, anthropologists egalitarian cultures because they are by far the most egalitarian societies that have ever been found. They have no uh, chief or big man. They don't have a hierarchy of structure. The bands are small and autonomous from one another. Uh, and the, um, uh, there's only about typically about 20 to 50 people in a band. And the bands are nomadic. They move around to follow the available game and vegetation. And so if you're nomadic like that, there's no point in owning any more property that you could easily carry on your back. They didn't have pack animals or anything to lug things around. So made no sense to own anything. And, and you can't really accumulate property in that sense. You don't build permanent houses because you're moving around all the time. You build little huts that are temporary. And so, and, and since you can't store food, you don't have refrigerators, you don't have good means for, the, the way you survive is by sharing everything. So if you didn't get any game that day, but you're but the others in your band did, you can still eat because everybody shares whatever they find. And so sharing and cooperation are really essential to survival in a hunter-gatherer band. And um, as part of that egalitarianism, that, that, that kind of sharing, you can't lord it over somebody else. You have to be, you have to respect one another. You have to cooperate. And they, so they have this, um, this, uh, almost, a, um, it's almost a taboo within such cultures to tell another person what to do to real extremes. I mean, you don't, if I, if, if you and I are band members and I see that you're not using your ax correctly. And if I were to walk over and tell you how to use the ax, I would be acting like a big shot. I would be acting like I, I'm lording it over you just because I'm telling you like, you're so stupid, you don't know how to use an ax, right? That would be the implication by going over. So I wouldn't even do that, you know? That almost seems silly in our culture. Of course, you would, we, wouldn't you even wanna know? But the truth of the matter is, even in our culture, you might not want me to go over and tell you how to use the ax, right? I've been in a situation where I would just rather learn by trial, trial and error. I don't like to have people tell me how to do things either. I think it kind of runs against human nature. Well, what's interesting regarding children is they have this same prohibition against telling children what to do. They don't tell children what to do. Imagine that. You know, how we can't even imagine raising children without telling them what to do. They don't tell them when to go to bed. They don't tell them things like that. The one thing they will do is they'll, if kids get into a fight, they'll break up the fight. They really are against fighting, but that's about it. <laughs> you know, they, 
they um, they just trust that the children are going to grow up fine. They don't they don't measure anything. You would be if you were to try to look at children to see who who's farthest along in learning how to how to shoot a bow and arrow or to track game or something like that, you, you, um, that would also be run counter. You just don't make those kinds of comparisons in that kind of a culture. So the children learn by observing, by incorporating into their play what they observe, by keeping their eyes and ears open, by talking with one another about what they're doing, and that's how they become educated. Well, what happened to that society, of course, was that eventually, um, at least except for those few places in the isolated parts of the world where they still survived into the 20th century, uh, throughout most of the world, that kind of society collapsed uh, as agriculture came about. So human beings, uh, being inventors, uh, discovered and invented agriculture. <laughs> and agriculture had some advantages over hunting and gathering. Um, you could be more certain of food if you, if you uh, planted it and harvested it. And um, you, could, there was the, the, you could deal with um, droughts by developing systems of irrigation and so on and so forth. So once agriculture came developed, it wouldn't be, wasn't, wouldn't be surprising that a number of groups began to use, began to grow crops. Well, as soon as you've got agriculture, you no longer can move around. Now you've got to stay where the crops are. You also now have to defend that territory. <laughs> this idea of just sharing everything um, goes down the drain at some point, because if you put all the work into um, into planting, you know, cultivating, uh, weeding, and so on and so forth. You're not going to just let anybody else walk in and take your crops. You put all the work into it. So, a number of things got invented in human culture. One is the concept of property. You have to sort of own that land and defend that land from other people who want to take it from you or want to take your crops from you. So the idea of property got developed. The idea of labor got developed. Hunter-gatherers don't even have a word for, for work, meaning labor, meaning, you know, they, they, if they do have a word, it means what those farmers do or what those people working on the road <laughs> do, um, not what they do, hunting and gathering and, and so on. In, in some sense, think of it. I mean, this is kind of what we do when, we, when we're on vacation, you know, we, uh, and, they're, and it's a little bit like they're on vacation all the time and they don't work that hard. I'm, I don't want to romanticize a hunter-gatherer way of life. There were problems of, of starvation at times when food was scarce, they're, they're sub, they don't have good medical facilities and so on and so forth. People often die at a young age, children die in childbirth. So I don't want to romanticize hunter-gatherer life, but in a certain sense, this is a, this is a culture that didn't have labor. <laughs> they did these things and they, they grew up playing at hunting and gathering, and then they continued to play at hunting and gathering, even though they're now, it's now also work in the sense that you're actually feeding the band this way. So that's the hunter-gatherer way of life. And it got destroyed with agriculture because now people could accumulate wealth, people own land. And at some point, uh, the land would be all owned, at least within some area. 
And once that's true, then the people who don't own land, who can't farm their own land, are dependent on the people who do own land. You no longer can hunt and gather, the land is, has been taken up. So you are now dependent on them. And so the people who do own land learned that, oh, they can, they can uh, accumulate wealth. Wealth became a concept. <laughs> they can accumulate wealth by hiring those people or enslaving those people who don't own land. Now you have hierarchies. Now you have a structure of landowners and people who are not landowners who are dependent on the landowners. Now you have, uh, so whether you call them employee, employees or serfs as we went into feudalism or slaves, you have people who are dependent. Ultimately in, in most of Europe and Asia too, this, this developed into a system that was called feudalism, where pretty much all the land was owned by a small number of uh, nobles, of kings and, and lords. And basically everybody else was in one way or another a servant to them. So now if you were a parent, you really couldn't raise your child to be the kind of person who expressed free will, who, ex who would demand um, rights or who would insist, uh, who would ask for, for, for justification if told something to do. You had to raise your child to be obedient because a non-obedient person could be just killed by um, by the Lord, who or, you know you were absolutely dependent on these people, and so um, and so the goal of child raising became very different from the goal of child raising in hunter gatherer cultures. There, the hunter gatherer cultures valued free will and they allowed their children to be free. And it seemed to work very well in hunter-gatherer cultures. Those, you know, those people who are free are very ingenious. They're, they become skilled hunters and gatherers. They become good artists and musicians. They become the kind of people who really contribute to the band. But now you need people who are, who are not creative. You need people who are going to follow orders. And so you, so what, happened was a system of raising children that focused on uh, obedience. And, you know, one way to get a sense of that, actually, uh, you know, some people might be offended by this, but read the Bible. See what the Bible says. What's the Bible's suggestions about child raising? The only thing you can find in the Bible about how to raise children is to beat them. If they talk back to you, beat them. <laughs> You know, the obedience is the key to how to raise children. And of course, in some fundamentalist groups, that's, they still abide by that. But that was the kind of uh, view about um, child raising that was developed during feudalism and is represented by the writings that occurred during that period of time. The first schools that were developed came about, uh, at least the first schools for the masses, the first schools for large numbers of people came about in relation to the Protestant um, Reformation. So the, as long as the Catholic Church was in charge, um, education as we think of it today wasn't so essential because um, religion was passed on to people by the church hierarchy.
So the uh, so the pope down to the bishops and on down to the priests and the way you learned what was right and wrong and the way you acquired your dogmatic beliefs was um, through was orally through the hierarchy. But uh, the Protestants were opposed to that kind of hierarchy. And they believed that everybody to save their souls had to be able to read the Bible themselves. So now reading became important. It became important not because it was important for other reasons in the culture at that time, but it was important in order to, most jobs didn't require reading. But, um, but saving your soul required reading because you had to be able to read the word of God yourself. That was the belief, at least of many of the Protestants. So schools were developed partly to, to teach people how to read. But in addition to teaching people how to read, of course, reading the Bible doesn't help if you don't believe the Bible. So you have to, um, the other thing being taught was, a, was, the, was indoctrination, the idea that the Bible is literal truth and that you have to learn what the Bible tells you in addition to being able to read it and think about it. And, um, and finally, in addition to that, since the whole notion of religion at that time was that was that the Lord is our shepherd and we are the sheep, right? We are the followers. We are the obedient ones uh, who have to learn how to follow our shepherd, the Lord. And that shepherd, the Lord might be your father in your home. It might be the Lord of the manor in the larger society. It might be the king or it might be God. We had a very hierarchical view. It was also a very male-centered hierarchy, right? So the, in the first schools, the, the teachers were called masters and they were male. And obedience to the master was a crucial part of what was being taught in school. You had to obey the master. You wouldn't question that master. You had to be obedient. So when you, these schools were developed um, in, uh, under Protestant guidance in a number, in many different parts of the world, including uh, the American colonies before, uh, be, before we became the United States, they were most fully developed in the German state of Prussia. And, um, and in Prussia, there were large numbers, large groups of people who essentially were being required to go to these schools. And when I went back and looked at some of the writings of the people who founded these schools, it was very clear in their writings that the primary purpose of the schools was to teach obedience. Also very important to teach reading and very important to indoctrinate in the Bible, but the primary purpose was obedience. The, uh, the directions for schoolmasters were that if uh, it's fine if you make your child more learned in the gospel, but if you don't teach obedience, you haven't done your job. And the primary way of teaching obedience at that time, although there was lip service to other methods, but the primary method of teaching obedience was to beat children if they didn't obey. And uh, so you would, you would actually beat them if they didn't get their lessons right, but you would also beat them if they misbehaved or if they talked back to you or any of those kinds of things. So what's interesting is those were the schools, if you walked into one of those schools from everything I've read, you would recognize it as a school. 
you would see you would see that the benches are lined up facing the front. The school master is in front. The school master is giving the students lessons, um, and the school and the children's job is to feed back the lessons. And they pass the core. They pass if they feed back the lessons. They they get beaten if they don't feed back the lesson properly. Now we, for the most part, in most parts of the world, don't beat children in school anymore. Although, believe it or not, in the United States, spanking in school is still legal in um, some states. But uh, we found other means of punishing children, mostly shaming them by comparison. You know, you've got a bad grade compared to everybody else. You got you did the worst in the class. We may not say it exactly that way, but we make it clear to students. So we use psychological forms of punishment today rather than physical forms. But other than that, it's still the case that a, the primary and we also don't think of our schools as teaching obedience. I don't know anybody who goes into teaching today who says my primary purpose for going into teaching is to teach children how to obey. Most people who go into teaching talk about my primary purpose for going into teaching is I want I want to create a love of learning. I want to I want to foster critical thinking. I want to foster creativity and all of that. But the truth of the matter is you're going into a school system that is still modeled after that Prussian school system. The truth of the matter is the only way you can fail in school is by not doing what you're told to do. Think about it. <laughs> the only way you can pass in school is by doing what you're told to do. So without question, the primary lesson of school as we know it today is the same as the primary lesson when schools were initially founded, which is obedience training. Children who are ready, who, who obey, will do okay in school, if not very well. Children who are not obedient, who resist, who rebel, who don't do what they're told to do, either because they can't do what they're told to do, they just aren't able to focus and be willing to do that, or who are whose free will is such that they just refuse to do it, they're the ones who get into trouble in school. So we still have that, we still have that system. Now, over the years, I mean, eventually, of course, these schools that were developed by the Protestants were taken over by the states. This occurred in Prussia first, and then it occurred in the United States. We had school, religious schools in the United States, in, in the colonies. By the end of the 19th century, in the United States, school was compulsory in every state, or at least early within the 20th century, it was compulsory within every state in the United States. And throughout much of the Western world, schools became compulsory and they were state run. The states were very eager, governments were very eager to take over these schools because they could see the power of the school in controlling the population. So Napoleon, for example, saw schools as a place to create soldiers, right? You know, and in, in the United States, uh, schools were seen as a way, you know, the, the United States was this great supposed melting, melting pot of people coming from all over the world. And there was fear in the United States about the different ideas people would come from. And there may be people who would be rebellious and, and counteract what, what the United States thought was right and proper in the United States. 
So schools became talked about and promoted as the basis for kind of Americanizing everybody who comes into the United States. So we all kind of have the same mindset, no matter where in the world you came from. Um, so those were the reasons that among the reasons the states took over. So it was still kind of, in some sense, obedience. It wasn't some people who've written about the early schools said it wasn't really it wasn't that people were concerned that that young people would grow up not being able to read it turns out that even before schools became compulsory most people were growing up able to learn able to read even amazingly there's research showing that a lot of slaves who in the slaves in the south it was illegal to teach them how to read, and yet many of them could read. They figured out how to read. It turns out not to be that difficult to learn how to read. So the idea that schools had to be developed to learn how to read, that's a bit of a myth. If As long as you're growing up in a world where other people are reading, you can figure out how to read. As long as there's written words and there's people you can talk to, you can learn how to read without going to school. That's one of the lessons of studies of, uh, of self-directed education. Everybody learns how to read, although at various different times and in many different ways, but you don't need to teach people how to read. But we think of schools as a place, we still think of schools as a place where you have to teach people how to read. At the time schools were initially started by the Protestants, that was true because if you're in a village where nobody reads, you're not gonna learn how to read, <laughs> you know? But as soon as you're growing up in a home where your parents read, you'll, you don't have any difficulty learning how to read. So that's the, um, so that's the way schools evolved. Now over time, of course, what's happened in more recent times, is that um, we've come to think of school as the place where children grow up, as school is the place where all of their development occurs. We, you know, the first thing you ask about a child is what grade are you in? You know, where we think of childhood in terms of school. And that's because school has expanded over time. It's taken over more and more of children's lives. These early schools were often only a few weeks of time, and they were maybe only from age eight to 13 or eight to something like that. But we've expanded the number of years of school, both by starting kids earlier, keeping them later. We've expanded the number of hours a day at school. We've expanded the number of months of the year of school. And so school is more and more a part of children's lives. We've added all kinds of subjects to school so that children are studying all these various things. It's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. They're studying all these various things that are, that may be, that some of which may turn out to be relevant to their lives. Most of it will turn out not to be relevant to their lives, but we have set up a system where in order to pass from grade to grade, they've got to pass tests on all of these things. So school has become in, in, in many ways a bigger deal for children and more stressful for children. Uh, as, as, uh, as children are increasingly judged uh, as human beings based on how they're doing in school. Yeah, so much to go on, Peter. What what a response. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's, um, I I want to ask about this this idea that um, 
this indoctrination idea, this still hasn't gone away, right? We still have this totalitarian regime where it's complete authority passed all the way down and learning from not the book of the church, but the book of whoever is deemed in the country. It, it's shocking still to me that this, this it's so stark. Yes. Um, yeah, now the, the problem is, and, and in some sense, this has, I think things got a little bit better in schools, actually, for a period of time in the, in the, um, in the 20th century. So, for example, when I was a student in school, um, there was... Um, there was more creative activity in school. So we wrote, you know, we, some of our assignments were things like writing stories, um, having debates on issues, you know, writing, uh, writing uh, essays on our own views about things and so on and so forth. There was a certain amount of creativity. There was a certain amount of room for discussion. Um, depended very much on what who you had as a teacher, because at that time, teachers were kind of kind of the kings or queens in the classroom and they could decide what to do and so life depended very much upon whether you had a uh, an open-minded creative person child-loving person as a teacher or you had a more narrow-minded indoctrinating <laughs> and possibly mean person as a teacher i happen to be fairly lucky and had uh really kind of uh liberal-minded creative people as teachers and we did a lot of creative things in school but at least in the united states you can't do that in school anymore teachers don't can't really decide what they're doing. I've heard from many teachers, I'm no more free than the, than the students are. I tell them that's not really true because you can quit. <laughs> and most of them are, can't quit. So, uh, but on, on the other hand, if they wanna stay, they've got to follow the curriculum. They've got to teach what's being taught. They've got to teach the curriculum. And more and more, and this is certainly true in the United States and in many other countries, the whole goal of what the teachers are supposed to be doing is improving test scores. So what that on standardized tests, so that what that means is indoctrinating, <laughs> stupidly indoctrinating them in the answers to the test questions, <laughs> whatever they are. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's so much that this is, as initially conceived, that this is a way of indoctrinating children into nationalism, although that's still part of it. I mean, it used to be that very much the history that you, you would study in history was how wonderful the people of your nation are and how terrible the people of the other nations are, <laughs> or how you know the founders of your nation were also are all wonder all morally perfect wonderful people you know and and um and all of that kind of thing and that at one point was very clear in the lessons it was very clearly stated that early german schools that came out of the prussian schools were you know the lessons were would be how beautiful the german language is how wonderful the german people are and how the german people are surrounded by enemies but we all know where that led. So that's the uh, 
so that's a, a lot of the history of schools. I think that's a little bit less true today, but now what people are concerned about is test scores and is still indoctrination. I mean, I'll give you an example of that. So I'm, as, as you know, an evolutionary biologist, evolutionary psychologist. So the theory of evolution by natural selection is a big part of my intellectual domain. And I, I have in my own mind, no doubt that Darwin was right and that um, we, we, as well as all other creatures, came about by natural selection from some kind of primitive origin. Now, there's huge debates in the United States about whether evolution should be taught in the schools. <laughs> and most people, of course, uh, who are liberal-minded and, and so on believe it should be taught in the schools and that it would be wrong to introduce an idea that this is debatable. You just want to teach it as fact. This is what people, liberal-minded people argue. And my response to that is teaching that as fact is just as bad as teaching the opposite as fact. <laughs> what we want is not to indoctrinate people by insisting that, uh, that Darwin was right, because I tell you Darwin was right. <laughs> That's just as bad as saying that the Pope is right because the Pope says it's true. This is not, this is indoctrination. I believe if you're going to teach evolution, if we should teach evolution in the school, but we should, we should allow both sides. We should allow debate. We should allow critical thinking. People should arrive at their own conclusions based upon the arguments that can be presented based upon the facts as we know them, and people should be able to evaluate those facts. In other words, treat children as intelligent beings <laughs> rather than treat children as uh, individuals who are simply absorbing information that we feed to them and feeding it back. So that's the sense in which I'm opposed to indoctrination, no matter what it is we're indoctrinating them on, even if we're indoctrinating on something that I think is correct. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And there's a great part in your book as well, where you talk about internal and external locus, which is very interesting to me and to the Bitcoin community, because you studied and come to some conclusions about self-sovereignty in, in a person and how that can be nurtured and destroyed. Yes, well, I think the context in which I talk about internal versus external locus of control is the, is the observation that over time in the last uh, several decades, really in the last uh, six decades or so, uh, there has been a decline in internal locus of control in children and young people. Uh, and what this means is, so there's actually a um, standardized clinical questionnaire for assessing locus of control. And basically what the questionnaire gets at is, do you feel you have control over your own life? Do you, can you solve your own problems to a considerable degree? Do you, are you in charge of your own destiny versus um, are you, do you feel like you're a victim of circumstance, fate, luck, powerful other people, things beyond your control? Are you in charge of yourself or are you a victim of things operating upon you? A victim or a beneficiary, depending on how you look at it, of things operating upon you. 
So of, of course, in reality, none of us has complete control. We are all, all to some extent affected by things beyond our control. There's no question about that. And to some extent, we all have some control, ability to make our own decisions. It turns out to be healthy to err on the side of believing you're in more control than you actually are. <laughs> the, the degree to which people feel they're in control has a kind of self-fulfilling effect. If you believe you have control, you tend to take control. If you believe you don't have control, you tend to, to not do the things necessary to take control. You don't take care of yourself as well. You don't take care of your society as well, and so on and so forth. So it's it's valuable, and it turns out that this is a predictor. People who have an internal locus of control, a strong internal locus of control, are much less likely to become depressed or anxious um, uh, as life goes on than people who don't have that strong internal locus of control. So it's valuable to have an internal locus of control. Now, the question is, where do you get an internal locus of control? How do you develop it? And my argument is you develop it to the degree that you do have control growing up. If as a child, you never have control, <laughs> you're always being controlled. You're always being told what to do. You're always in a situation where there are adults directing you and there are adults protecting you so that, so that you really don't have to take control. You don't have to solve your own problems because there's some adult there to solve your problems for you. You don't have to decide what to do because there's always an adult there to decide what to do. So depending on, on whether you're thinking of this as a burden or a benefit, the fact that you don't have to solve your own problems and you, and you can't take, take initiative to do things because other people are doing that all that for you. The fact of the matter is in school and to a greater, ever greater extent, even out of school, you're being as a child directed by adults and, and, um, and, and therefore don't have the opportunity to learn that you have control over your own life. The fact that over the, at least, you know, since I was a child in the 1950s, there's been a continuous trend towards children having less and less freedom to just go out and play, explore on their own with other kids where you have to take control because there's no adult asserting control over you, uh, that we have decreased children's opportunities to do that over time. And over that same period of time, uh, this questionnaire indicates that children have get, have less have increasingly failed to develop an internal locus of control. Uh, so that's uh, that's part of the argument of why um, over time there's an increase in anxiety and depression and other mental disorders, increase in childhood suicide, certainly in the United States. Uh, partly related to the decline of internal locus of control, which is also at least partly, if not, not entirely related to the fact that we're giving children less opportunity to be free where they learn how to take control of their own lives. Now, Peter, this is what fascinates me right here, this juncture of um, self-sovereignty, because this is something that we talk about in the Bitcoin space, and it's just this huge effect that when you start to learn about and interact with and, and invest into Bitcoin, uh, which I'm not sure how much you know, I'll just give you a quick overview. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a new monetary system that has been created outside of the control of the Federal Reserve in the United States or the central banks around the world, wherever you live. 
it cannot be controlled and it cannot be inflated. There is a hard cap, there are consensus rules that are completely set and everybody's incentivized to follow. Now, when, it, when you first come to the space, you, that doesn't dawn on you. But over time, as you realize that you have taken control of money that has encapsulated all of your hard spent time and um, represents the value that the time that you've given up in the past to earn is now protected and in your control because you truly are self-sovereign over that it unlocks this amazing kind of optimistic hope for the future and we all talk about this in the space i would love to send you some episodes to see what you think about it because it would truly interest you and, and pick your interest over this and it's it's something that everybody has experienced we all have a much higher degree of hope and optimism for the future and this has also exploded a huge amount of like freedom of choice of education everybody is now talking about oh my god i'm learning so much about this 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 and people are into philosophy people are into um having discussions like this uh, about um uh, hunter-gatherer tribes or archaeology archaeology or uh agri the agricultural revolution or the um the rise and the fall of the church we have all of these same conversations and it's only by interacting with the Bitcoin and taking control of your money and gaining self-sovereignty in that one respect that has unlocked all of this huge power. And it's, this is just, it's fascinating to, to have these, these conversations. Um, now there's a few other things that I want to touch on uh, your, your personal story, because this, this wasn't your domain. You're you, there you were as a, um, Mammalian um, biologist, is that correct? Your original right, a, a, a neuroscientist. I was studying the <laughs> brains of uh, laboratory animals. <laughs> Somehow, you got pulled down to the rabbit hole of self-led direct, uh, self-directed education. Um, I know, obviously, you've you shared the story with me before, and it's it's the start of your book. Would you mind explaining to the listeners how a certain uh, young man, your son Scott, helped? educate you in a in a certain meeting with uh, the principals of, of your school at that time well, as i mentioned at the outset to your daughters uh, my son was the first person to tell me that school is prison he experienced it as prison from the from kindergarten on through fourth grade um, he was going to what was regarded as a good uh, suburban public school here in massachusetts um, and was fighting it all the, all the way. Uh, uh, he's a very strong-minded and stubborn person, still is, <laughs> always has been. Uh, and he just was not willing to do things that seemed stupid to him or that seemed like a waste of time. And so if a teacher told him to do something, he would argue or he would refuse to do it or he would do it in some entirely different way, which made it more interesting to him. And this, um, this is something that um, I don't blame the teachers in this case. I, I blame the school system, but this is something that can't be tolerated in school. You can't have people acting that way. The whole thing would be 
the whole thing falls apart if you have kids uh, demanding to know why they should do something. You can't have 30 kids doing that. <laughs> Even one kid makes a big disruption doing that. Uh, you've got to move on. This disrupts the whole classroom. So he and so I would I would give him these lectures, you know, you know, it'd be so much easier. I'd tell him if you would just do what you're told to do. It's only you know, it's, you're not there all the time. Just do it. Don't argue with them. Just do it. I, I tell them, you know, like I did when I was a kid. <laughs> right? So the, uh, but he, for some reason, dispositionally was not willing or able to do that. And so fought it all the way. And at, at some point, and, and I think the teachers felt that it was um, his parents' fault that he was the way he was, or at least that we could somehow correct the problem. And so he was constantly in calling his mother and me, they were constantly calling his mother and me in to talk to the teachers about what are we going to do about this kid. And so, um, and so at some point it ended up at a big meeting in the principal's office where his mother and I were there and I were there and uh, his classroom teacher and assistant teacher, the principal of the school, the vice principal of the school, the school psychologist and some other psychologist who had been called in from outside were all there meeting with, with my little son um, to tell him in no uncertain terms, a unified voice from all us big adults that he had to do what he was told to do in school. He had no choice about it. And he looked at us all and he said, go to hell. He was nine years old. <laughs> and I um, started to cry. I looked over at uh, my wife, uh, my late wife, and she started to cry. And, um, and I think as we looked at uh, one another, we we realized, we both realized and realized that the other realized that he had now won <laughs> and that we had to be on his side and not against him. We had to stop fighting him. We were not going to win this battle and, and we had to go with him. And, um, and the end result of it was that we, we realized we had to find some alternative. We weren't in a position to do homeschooling. We really didn't even know much about homeschooling at that. This was quite a long time ago. Homeschooling was hardly a thing at that time anyway. And so we looked at other schools. We found some various progressive schools and um, visited them. And my son felt like those were just kind of softer prisons. They were still prisons. <laughs> And then we found Sudbury Valley, which is a school that's as radically different as any school you can imagine. It is a school for self-directed education. There's um, the staff members don't call themselves teachers because they don't feel they do any more teaching than anybody else at the school. There's kids there from age four on through what we think of as high school age, but they're not assigned to any spaces. They're not divided into classes. They're, are, not only are there no courses required, but there are no courses offered. <laughs> if children want to have a course, they could create one and it only lasts as long as they want it. And they, and they can usually talk a staff member into leading it if they want a staff member to lead it. But for the most part, children are playing and exploring. They're in some sense behaving like hunter-gatherers. And, um, and so this is a very, very different school. And when my son saw it, he said, if this is true, if this isn't just an act that I'm seeing, this is what a school should be. And so he went for the visiting where, 
week and his mother and I began to see our old son coming back. The, 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 the sparkle in his eyes were coming back, the smile on his face, the joy of learning was returning to him. The kid that we knew before he ever started school was coming back. So we were very, very happy about that. But I was also worried about um, this question that your daughter asked at the beginning of the session. <laughs> You know, do you need a certificate? Do you need what's going to go happen to him when he um, when if he goes on and goes out through all of his school here, never gets a high school diploma from a regular school? Uh, what will his life be like? And um, so I began to ask about the graduates of the school. The school had already been in existence long enough that there were some graduates, um, quite a few graduates. Um, and um, so I began to hear some sort of stories about some of the graduates that were doing well. But being a scientist, I was concerned that I was just being told about the selected ones who were happened to be the shining stars. And there were probably maybe there were a bunch of other homeless people out there or people in jail or mental hospitals or who knows what who had uh, been former students. So I wanted some more systematic data on this as a scientist. And I started off by trying to get people who, were, who would be more in this field to do a study of the graduates. I thought there was a group at Harvard University who th thought they were interested in, who, who claimed they were interested in democratic schooling. And I thought, well, no, you know, here's, here's a perfect opportunity for you to study a democratic school. You could study the graduates of school. I couldn't get them interested. I couldn't get anybody in education or any developed child psychologists interested in doing it. So I finally decided, well, if this study is going to get done, I'm going to have to do it myself. I ended up collaborating with uh, David Chanoff, who was at that time a part-time staff member at the school. And um, so we did a study of the graduates of the school. We identified, we managed to contact uh, about 90% of the people who had who we defined as graduates, who were people who left at kind of the typical graduation age, if you were in another school and who didn't go on to secondary schooling someplace else, but went on to life in some one way or another, either higher education or a job or traveling or something as, a, as an interim to, um, to a career. And, um, and there were about 90 uh, total people in that category. We managed to find about 90% of them and, we and about 90% of them returned a pretty long questionnaire that we gave them. Well, that study eventually turned my life around, not completely immediately, but it was a really eye-opening finding. So here were people not doing anything like what we think of as school in a society where everybody believes you've got to do school <laughs> as we think of it in order to live a good life as an adult. So here they were, here are these young adults um, living good lives, getting good jobs, going on to higher education if they want, satisfied with their life, happy, who had not done school. And they came from a wide variety of backgrounds. This was not a selected cream of the crop kind of person. There's no admissions requirements to be accepted into the school. Tuition is very low. Uh, a lot of the kids had come to the school precisely because they were doing badly in one way or another in public school. Others had come right from the beginning because their parents believed in it. I couldn't see any, any particular personality trait that um, was incompatible with doing well at the school. So this was really eye-opening to me. And over time, it changed my career. Not immediately, I continued to do some of the same kind of 
rodent work that I was doing before. Uh, but I, I eventually got interested in, so, so I know that the graduates of this school are doing well in life by every, every reasonable criterion, which means if we think of education as whatever it is that you need to know in order to do well in life, <laughs> Um, it means they became educated. Well, how did they become educated? What does it even mean to become educated? These kinds of questions came to my mind. And so uh, not too long after that study was done, uh, one of my graduate students who, was interest, who got interested in this um, did his doctoral dissertation based on a lot of observations at the school. I was partly involved in that and um, and we wrote an article on how, how play and exploration in this age-mixed environment promotes children's education, how younger children are always learning from older children, how older children get a sense of their own maturity interacting with younger children. And um, so, we be, so we began to get an idea of how in this kind of environment, which is in some ways like a hunter-gatherer culture, where children are not segregated by age, they've got all day long to play and explore how they're becoming educated. And that really led me onto this long chain of how, uh, you know, developing a kind of a theory of education, a biologically based theory of education that we human beings come into the world biologically designed to educate ourselves that we don't have to educate children, that children educate themselves. But what we do have to do in our culture, unlike in a hunter-gatherer culture, is create special places where they can educate themselves. Because you can't, in a hunter-gatherer culture, that the place is just natural. The children see what adults do. There's lots of other children to play with. They can, the, the conditions are there for learning. In our culture, if you just threw a child out on the street, they're not going to become well-educated because they're not going to see the best of the culture. They're not going to see enough of the, they're not going to, so, so develop this idea that there are certain educative instincts in children, their playfulness, their tendency to play at the skills of the culture, their curiosity, they wanna know about the things that they see, their, their attunement to other people, their tendency to pay a lot of attention to who's doing well in the world and why are they doing well in the world and to, to listen and, and to learn by listening and observing, not by being taught. And so, um, and so, that, so that was really the, the, that led to the whole series of work that I've done, the academic articles, the blog that I do for Psychology Today on these topics and, um, and my book, uh, Free to Learn, which is all about these things. It's it strikes me that we we've completely lost that that trust in kids' ability to learn, and I know you see this as well a lot. It, it's like we we totally believe in the fact that they're never going to be able to learn unless they're guided by an adult hand or shown what to do. Right. You showed an extraordinary amount of trust in in your son at this turning point in your life. How do we? How do we get this trust back? Like, what, what does society need to do? We, we just seem to be heading so far in the other direction. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that some people are beginning to get it. 
So in the United States, there has been over the decades an increase in homeschooling. Uh, that the increase in homeschooling far outweighs the number of people going to schools like Sudbury Valley that are for self-directed education. Homeschooling is a big thing in the United States. So, um, and there's been a further big jump in homeschooling because of the pandemic. Um, homeschooling has doubled in the United States because of the pandemic. And this is not, this is real homeschooling where people are, people are, um, are leaving the public school system, not doing school online or in person, but doing homeschooling. Um, for many of these people it's probably temporary, but I'm hearing from more and more families uh, that what they're observing is that when their children have free time, their children are learning a lot of interesting things <laughs> and doing a lot of interesting things. And some of these families, even though they first thought that they were homeschooling just temporarily because they didn't like this, uh, they didn't want to expose their kids to the coronavirus by going to the school physically. And they also, the, the school sponsored distance learning was for many schools, for many families, a disaster. Uh, so they, they opted for homeschooling instead. Homeschooling had already been on the rise, but it jumped. It went from 5% of American families to 10% of families with children suddenly homeschooling. And, um, and so I think that, and so if you're homeschooling, even if you believe, as many people do when they first start homeschooling, that what you're going to do at home is basically like school. You're going to do school at home. That's what homeschooling means. You're going to do school at home. So you're going to sit the kid down at the kitchen table and you're going to teach them all the same lessons as the school teaches them. What almost every family finds is that doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You end up fighting with your kid you find that you are bored with the curriculum <laughs> and you begin to sympathize with why your child is bored with the curriculum and you and you begin to realize something that's a real advantage of homeschooling that you might not have even thought of before in the school my child's own desires can play almost no role because there's 30 kids there and so if they tried to take every kid's own desires into account, it wouldn't work. So they have to give everybody the same curriculum, regardless of what that child's interests are, what the child's abilities and predilections are. But at home, that's not true. <laughs> at home, your child can decide what he or she wants to read. And you as the parent, if you've got any intelligence at all, can look, or any perceptiveness at all, can look and say, why should I make my child read book A if my child wants to read book B? <laughs> and they're equally interesting, equally informative, or, you know, so, and so you begin, and it's a, and of course, it's a little bit of a slippery slope. As soon as you acknowledge that your child has some say, you begin to think, well, why not allow my child to have all the say? It seems to be working out pretty well. So almost nobody goes immediately into unschooling. They go into homeschooling. It becomes looser and looser and looser, and it becomes unschooling. And then sometimes people discover, oh, there's actually a word for this. <laughs> I'm not just being a lazy mom or dad. I, uh, I'm doing 
we're doing unschooling, right? So I think that more, I think this is happening. And I think that, I think that this is the way it's occurring. And I don't think that it's, I don't, I think the way that change, my theory of social change is the tipping point theory of social change, which is that it's not that the whole culture changes at once. It's not that there's a gradual change that seeps over the whole culture. And that's certainly not gonna work with schooling. What happens is there's a certain number, a small number of people who are relatively brave, who do something that they see makes sense or for their family or them personally, it makes sense and they do it. <laughs> they do it even though, even though they look weird to other people for doing it. And that's the biggest challenge about self-directed education. Other people think what you're doing is weird or at best weird, at worst, you're destroying your child, right? So people, so it takes bravery at the beginning to do this when you are one of the few families doing it, but there are always some brave people who do it. Once a certain number of people are doing it, then some other people began to do it. They say, well, it seems to be working out for them. Maybe it's not so weird after all. And then more people began to do it. And so over time, you have this increasing number. Grad it's at first, it's a gradual change. You know, maybe 1% maybe of the population and then 5% of the population, then 10% of the population. At some point, it reaches the point where there are enough people doing it that everybody knows somebody who's doing it. <laughs> and then it's not so weird anymore. Now it's an alternative, normal way to raise your children, an alternative, normal. And now it becomes a choice without fear that you're doing something abnormal. That's the way I see social change occurring. And that's why I don't Although I do work with normal schools, with regular schools to try to bring more play and less testing and so on into the schools, because for some period of time, there's still going to be a lot of kids in school. But I don't see that as the vehicle for change. I don't see schools changing to become places for self-directed education, schools as we know them. What I see happening is more and more people leaving those schools. And at some point, those schools will either have to change <laughs> or they will simply vanish. One way to look at it is, as I said, I'm an evolutionist, is you know, in, in biological evolution, there's two ways things change. One is by gradual change, small, small mutations accumulating over time by survival, by survival and lack of survival to create bigger changes over time. That's the way we usually think of evolution. But evolution also occurs by virtue of extinctions. <laughs> Some creatures, those dinosaurs, just couldn't evolve to meet the changes, so they went extinct. And their, and their place in the world was taken over by these little mouse-like mammals that now thrived in the absence of the dinosaurs. So by analogy in cultural evolution, I think of the, of the uh, typical schools we have as kind of the dinosaurs. They're huge, they are, they are established, they're occupying the territory. But meanwhile, these little mouse-like free schools and unschoolers are scurrying around. <laughs> There's more and more of them available. And at some point, as they become more and more prevalent, 
the dinosaurs are going to collapse and create even more space for the for the people adopting self-directed education. That's my theory of how this how the change will occur, and I hope I live long enough to see it. <laughs> and and again, an exact crossover with and a great analogy. We use it, uh, you know, like the banking system. You know that the banks are the dinosaurs, and the you know these these little rats scurrying <laughs> around, buying Bitcoin, doing crazy stuff, being brave, going first, taking self sovereignty, taking control. You know, the meme is you know we're, we're separating money from state. Once you separate money from state, you are inevitably going to separate education from state and vice versa. If you're separating education from state, that takes you down a whole rabbit hole of self-exploration, asking questions, you know, like we've gone through today. And I know we're getting, uh, we're just 10 minutes away from, from stopping here. Um, you know, what is school? You know, what is money? And it just like, if you take everything, just pile it all back to the bare bones, it does just become incredible. It's so intertwined. And I, I see both of these communities driving the social change that, for a huge amount of positivity in the future. Because if people can take more control over their life and have more freedom and more options and to rebuild families, again, Peter, you know, self-directed education does that, right? Um, that's one thing I would love to drive home. You know, the I see the education system as an attack on the family. You have, you know, it doesn't serve mom and dad. It doesn't serve the kids. It really doesn't serve the family unit. It, it is a constant rat race of stress and anxiety. And like you pointed out earlier, when you're in that meeting, with with Scott all those years ago, the, the the kind of suggestion was there that bad parenting was at play. This is this is really crippling on families, and it's um it's not good. And I've experienced it myself with my own family. How how kids change, and you see their spark in their eye, and you see what really they are interested in. So the, there's so much we could carry on with, but. Um, before we before we do tie up, let's talk about uh, you know current times and what have you seen with um, kids that now they're at home. Um, you know, what's your message to parents that they've seen a change in their kids, perhaps that they're at home, um, that perhaps sending them back to school come the time, or maybe it's already happened in the US. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, how should they? What, what kind of warning signs should they be looking out for in their children? Because there, there's a huge amount of anxiety and depression and suicide rates are just shocking among teens. It's just, um, you know, you, you've done a lot of research about this. And I think it's definitely something we should we should touch on before we wrap this up. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting um, to see what's happened um, as a result of the pandemic, this closure of schools, the closure also of all uh, the United States, at least of all those after-school activities that were keeping children so busy. So I was involved in a, in a study, a fairly large-scale study um, that occurred. Uh, we, we did a, a survey, a cross-sectional group of, uh, of American families um, in, uh, April and May of uh, 2020, the year, uh, the a month and two months after all these things were closed, 
And we surveyed families that had children between the age of eight and 13. And um, uh, 1,600 families with each survey. And in half the families, the questions were addressed to the parents and the other half to the children. And these were questions that got at how the children were feeling during this time, how the parents were feeling during this time, what the children were doing during this time with all these school and other activities, how they felt about missing school, um, and a lot of questions that had to do with their emotional adaptation and what uh, their emotional feelings during this time. Now, contrary to uh, so many of the reports that you read in the paper, what we found was that all in all, the children were doing better than they were before the lockdown. Um, that doesn't mean they were doing so great. What it really means is they were doing terrible before the lockdown. <laughs> children, the, the rate of anxiety, the rate of depression, the rate of childhood suicide had been increasing year to year, and certainly decade to decade, for decades in the United States, as, as school has become more restrictive, more pressured, as children had less and less freedom. So suddenly, school was closed down, and all those after-school activities, and suddenly children had free time. It was a little hard to predict what would happen. Would children even know how to use their free time? <laughs> you know, what would happen to them? But what we found in this study, one of the questions we asked of the children is, are you more calm or less calm than you were before uh, the, the lockdown? And twice as many said more calm as said less calm. We asked the children, we asked the, the parents about their children, are they more anxious or less anxious? And again, many more said that they're less anxious than said they're more anxious. To me, that wasn't very surprising. I, I'm publishing an article on it, and some of the reviewers were very surprised by that, and they really wondered, is this, could this possibly be true? Because you keep reading these reports about how the pandemic is having such terrible effects on children. But to me, it wasn't surprising. We know that during the summer, when schools close, children become less anxious. There's a lot of evidence for that. Suicide rate among children goes down when schools close in the summer. This has been known for a long time by, by people who do that research. Unfortunately, it never gets into the popular press. So people in general don't know that. But school is a major source of stress. And so you close school down and children are less stressed. No big surprise. And this is despite the fact, I don't wanna deny that the coronavirus itself was a stress. And for some families more so than other families, of course. And so, and, and these children were not ignorant of the effects of the coronavirus and the threat of it. And there, and there were some family problems that resulted from it, but nevertheless, that was more than compensated for in the majority of families by the fact that these kids now didn't have to go to school. They were doing virtual schooling at home in most cases, but that wasn't taking the whole day. It was only taking two or three hours. They would say, I can do the whole schoolwork in two or three hours and I've got the rest of the day free. We asked the children in open-ended questions what they were doing during this period of time. And a lot of them said things like, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've had this guitar that I've owned for several years and I never had time to play it. I'm learning how to play the guitar. <laughs> People saying some one, one, one young girl said, I'm, I'm, I've been, I've long wanted to learn Japanese. I'm learning Japanese online. <laughs> I'm, uh, there, there are people learning to ride a bicycle for the first time. Kids who somehow had reached the age of 10 or 11, 12, never 
learned how to ride a bicycle are now learning how to we're now learning how to ride a bicycle. They had time. Most of them said in response to our question about boredom, they said, yeah, I was bored. <laughs> and boredom turns out to be a good thing. It's what gets you to do something. Like what gets you to, oh, I'm so bored. And as long as your parents don't respond by trying to amuse you and get you out of your boredom, then you have to get yourself out of your boredom, which means you'd have to take initiative and find something you want to do. A lot of them were saying, I'm cooking meals. And the parents were happy about this. The parents, I'm, I'm doing housework that I never did before and I you know they're home they're they're bored so and and they're and and for many of them it's a thrill to know how to to learn how to cook to be allowed to use the oven which is regarded by some parents as a dangerous thing to 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 use and so they were reluctant to have their children but now the children are home all the time the children want to do it so they're letting their children cook so a lot of interesting good thing one of the one of the questions that was perhaps most surprising that we asked was we asked if the parents are have conflicts between you and your child increased or decreased uh, since the schools closed amazingly the great majority said conflicts decreased uh, very few said conflicts increased. And again, uh, to me, for most people, this is a surprise. I mean, the kids are home all the time. You'd think that you'd be getting irritable towards them, that they'd be demanding, that they're interfering with your attempt to do your work at home and so on and so forth. And the conflicts would increase just because the children are around more. But conflicts decreased. And to me, that's not so surprising if you think of, if you think of the fact that a lot of conflicts and maybe most conflicts between kids and parents have to do with school. The getting the kid up in the morning while the kid is still tired to go to school, get them off, getting them get making them do their homework when they get home, you know, and then bussing them around from one activity to another after school. This is a recipe for conflict. Well, all of that has been cut off. Moreover, a lot of what a lot of the parents said is for the first time in a long time, my kid is getting enough sleep. <laughs> They're sleeping late in the morning. It's sort of natural, especially for teenagers, but even for middle age, middle, middle kids to, to tend to their natural cycle is to stay up late at night and sleep late in the morning. That seems to be more the natural cycle for a lot of kids. And now suddenly they're allowed to do that and they're getting eight to 10 hours of sleep. Whereas before that they were getting six or seven hours of sleep at best because they get to sleep late that they have to get up to, for school the next morning at some what to them is an ungodly hour in the morning. So that's, um, so that's so there were these positive changes now i don't want to i don't want to be pollyannish about this there were you know there i'm not saying that every that everything was the pot at the end of the rainbow in terms of uh, in terms of this so clearly there are people suffering and clearly there are some children who are suffering more than others and oftentimes it's children in relatively poor families that don't have the same facilities or don't have so much room in their own home to space to get away from one another and uh, where there's worry even about food on the table and schools also in the United States serve as kind of social um, security function of providing meals for children and suddenly this is taken away from many families so there were certainly some, many downsides of school closure. The one thing that I would say to parents I think what most I think what worries parents more than anything else is that their children are falling behind academically. You keep hearing they're losing a whole year of learning. What I wanna 
tell parents, no, they're not losing a year of learning. They're experiencing a year of different kind of learning. <laughs> they're learning things that are probably more important than what they would have learned in school. And 95% drew that out of a hat, but I don't think it's far off. 95% of what they learn in a year in school, they forget by the next year anyway, <laughs> because it's not relevant to their lives. Everybody who's gone to school knows that you, what you do is you stuff your head with the stuff you need to know for the next test, and then you empty your head <laughs> of all that information as you prepare for the next test after that. Very little is retained from year to year. I look at children who have uh, been self-directed, who haven't, who've missed all of school. They've missed the whole damn thing, right? not just a year of it, they've missed the whole thing and they're not behind. <laughs> they go on, if they go on to college, it may be that there are some terms that the other kids remember about biology, like maybe meiosis or mitosis. And so what, so you don't know that because you never took a biology course and the the professor is talking about that. So what do you do? You take out your cell phone, you Google mitosis, meiosis. Ah, that's what it is, right? You know, if we live in a world where there's no need to carry information around in your head. Not that, not that the, even in the past, students were carrying much of that information in their head. But if they were, if they are carrying it in their head today, they don't need to because you can just look it up. <laughs> You can just look it up in an instant. What we need is people who can take initiative, who can think for themselves, who can think creatively, and who can take responsibility for themselves. And that's why these kids are doing well. Now, I think that what's happening with the kids in coronavirus is a lot of them are learning something about taking care of themselves, taking responsibility for themselves. And that's a more important lesson than whatever they would have been learning in that year of school. A hundred percent. Absolutely. hundred percent. Last question. I know you've got to run off. Um, we, we have um, the kind of analogy of the matrix film, um, taking the red pill and taking the blue pill. Uh, obviously if you take the blue pill, you wake up and life goes on, you take the red pill and it's completely changed. If, if we use that analogy for your domain of, of self-directed education and you had one red pill to give to someone to learn about self-directed self-directed education and then share it with their audience. Who would you give that pill to and why? I'm sorry, what person would I give the, that pill yeah. to? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh gosh, I don't even know to be honest because you know, you, you, one would be tempted to say that you would give it to somebody in a powerful position. But I don't think this, these changes can occur by virtue of a powerful position. I think these changes have to occur at the groundswell level. I don't think that there are top-down kinds of decisions to be made. So I would probably give it to whoever I thought, whoever I knew who I felt was uh, most upset <laughs> by uh, their kids in school, but it could be anybody. It really could be anybody. I don't, I don't think of uh, social change as occurring because there's some 
particular powerful influential person who's going to, once they get the insight, they will institute the change. Well, Peter, thank you so much for all of your answers today. Thank you again for the book. It's free to learn for the listeners. Is there anywhere they can come and um, interact with you? I'm not sure if you're on Twitter. Uh, where, where can people reach out if uh, they would like to learn more? Well, people can, um, I do a regular blog for Psychology Today. People can read my essays on my Psychology Today site. I also am active on Facebook. I have many Facebook followers. People can follow me on Facebook. Um, there's often a lot of very interesting discussions on my Facebook page on um, all of these kinds of issues. So those are, that's a, a good way to um, get involved with the ideas that I'm thinking about and other people are thinking about also. Excellent. And I, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to send you a few links, which I think you might find uh, rather interesting, uh, perhaps to an article, a book and uh, a podcast uh, about all right. outside of Bitcoin. Thank you, Peter. Take okay. care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Well, now do you see why I say, now do you see what I see? That the, the, the rabbit holes are so, they're, they're parallel. Like there's, a, I think there's a juncture at every stop that just cross over from Bitcoin to unschooling, self-directed education, homeschooling, world schooling, whatever you want to talk, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter. There are so many different names to call it. Uh, because, you know, what do you call something that is just so natural? It's just so natural in us to, to want to learn, to be able to learn. And to, to think that one institution should have total monopolistic authoritarian control over what we should be learning is just it's just madness when you look at it that way and to give your kids up at the age of in some countries three some other places even one if they go into daycare or pre-kindy or whatever this freaking nightmare is turned into it's time to separate education from state because the self-sovereignty it gives you is, is huge and if you if you're here in the bitcoin community you will be led there whether without my push or pull it's just a natural thing for you to start questioning so i hope these add value to you i hope they bring some kind of interest to the conversation and thank you so much peter for giving up so much of your time to come on and discuss these things he's done so many interviews in the past written so many articles you can go and find him as i said find him on youtube he's all over youtube with his tech talks he's all over youtube with many other different podcasts and articles his book is free to learn well it's not that's the title of it it's not free you have to pay for it uh you can find it on amazon you can get it on audible whatever you want to do it's definitely worth digging it into it's truly fascinating so it's great to have a non-bitcoiner on the show i have sent peter some some uh, links as i promised uh, i hope he enters the rabbit hole if any of you are on facebook uh, that's where you might be able to reach out and say thank you to him or track him down at his blog and perhaps leave a, a post under one of his uh, articles otherwise uh, unfortunately he's not on twitter so you're not going to be able to interact with him there I shall stop the rambling. I shall close out with a huge thank you to all of you listeners that are tuning in and sharing, liking, commenting, rating, reviewing, subscribing, whatever it is you do 
to help support the show and support this journey. I really, truly appreciate it. Love you all. Uh, don't forget, please check out the show's sponsors. You can head to once-bitten.com and hit up the sponsors page. You'll see a few extra there that I don't shill on the show officially, like Shamari, but you'll get a 10% discount. And look out for some free code drops for that game as well. Scott has done a great job designing that game. And of course, the, the you know the main sponsors of the show. There's there's Coinfloor in the UK. Go start stacking sats with those guys. Bitcoin only exchange. Coinfloor.co.uk uh, forward slash bitten. In the US, you know the Swan guys have you covered. Uh, they're going to have a huge presence at the Miami conference. So if you're heading over there, make sure to look out for the Swan Lounge. Uh, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten and across Europe relay relai.ch forward slash bitten all of these codes will get you either uh, a free 10 bucks I think in the case of swan but the other guys you'll save on commission but then you go and create your own links right that you can share with your friends and family and you can start helping them save on commissions and get a little kickback on your side and just keep this whole thing moving along as we Bitcoin eyes of the world. Uh, please make sure to look after your keys. Stack safe. Get your corn, get your sats onto a Bitcoin only wallet. You can do that at shiftcrypto.com, excuse me, .ch, shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. Get the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition wallet. They have a Bitcoin only one. That's all you need. You've got Bitcoin only companies, Bitcoin only wallet. Keep this laser focused, guys. And yeah, you'll, you'll thank us in five to 10 years. Anyway, have a great morning, afternoon, day, wherever you are. Thank you for listening. Thank you again, Peter, for coming on the show. Take care, everyone. Catch you next time.